0: We are your sheep, we know your voice, would you speak tonight through this text, and we pray that in Jesus' mighty and powerful and sovereign name, amen. So, a few weeks ago, I got something in the mail, actually it was a month ago, I got something in the mail, you guys may know what it is, it's called jury duty. You guys ever gotten jury, you ever gotten jury duty in here, Yeah. Um, so I've gotten jury duty, and it's really weird because I'm only 25, and I've gotten it like three times. I don't know what's up with that. I think they, they're messing something up. But anyway, so I got jury duty, and I went in. It was my day off, so whatever. I went in, I got in the room with everybody, and there was snacks, so that was cool, and uh, everybody was griping and complaining about the fact that they had jury duty, which is kind of half the fun of jury duty, you know, is you get to be like, I could be working right now, which, seriously? Um so you sit in the room and then, you know, they, they gave you this intro video and the gal couldn't get it to work and it was funny. And and uh, anyway, so we watched the intro video and then finally they select some of us out of the group, out of a group of maybe 100, 150, something like that, to go into a courtroom. And we go into the courtroom and now it's time for them to select a jury out of about 20, 25 of us. So we're sitting in the courtroom. And my 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 demeanor, my my uh, my mood was sort of just relaxed and chill. And then I got into the courtroom and I'm like, this is the real deal, you know, like, this is crazy, then the lawyers come out, and the cop's sitting over there, and the guy who's on trial sitting over there, and the judge is there, and, you know, and, and then the lawyers come out, and they start questioning us, the jury, um, asking us things, you know, about our life, and, and trying to figure out if we're, you know, they're trying to select, handpick the jurors, and as they're asking me questions, I'm kind of getting like, you know, like my adrenaline's going a little bit you know and they they they're asking all these questions and then and then finally they they actually picked the jury they picked eight of us and I was actually on the jury which was super cool um which is surprising cuz I'm a pastor <laughs> but I didn't open my mouth at all and so I think that's why they let me through um, so I get on the actual jury which is really cool um they even voted for me to be the lead juror which was really fun um it was cuz I was the only one that was talking through the whole you know awkward uh, day and anyways and then as I'm sitting there and I'm noticing something specific, I'm noticing as these people are going up to the stand or the box or whatever it's called to be questioned, uh, you know, a lot of them, they're just shaking and they're nervous and, 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 and it's like, man, what is that? Is There's something nerve-wracking about being questioned. There's something nerve-wracking about people grilling you and, and, and trying to get at the things from you and examine you. Have you guys ever had that feeling before, like a job interview or, or, or things like that? Well, this is kind of where we find Jesus uh, tonight. He's being questioned, Okay, he's come into Jerusalem, Jesus, the Passover lamb, right? And as the Passover lamb would have been also, he's being examined. He's being grilled by the religious leaders. He's, he, they're, they're questioning him. Last week we saw the Pharisees, remember, question him about taxation in Rome. They said, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus gives a, a, an amazing response. So, you know, it, what's, whose face is on the coin and give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Um, and now... After the Pharisees have questioned him, after the Pharisees have examined him, the Sadducees are now coming to examine him. Now, if you guys remember a few weeks back, I talked about the, the, the group called the Sanhedrin. Now, it's hard to keep all these guys straight. We've got the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is, is basically a collection of the top dogs from each group. Does that make sense? So the Sanhedrin is 71 guys that make up the board, the elders, the leaders of... The religious community So within the Sanhedrin We have Sadducees We have scribes We have Pharisees We have different people That are represented within that Now Jesus has literally climbed To the point where he is Ticked off the top Right He has upset The highest religious power Which is the Sanhedrin And the Sanhedrin is now sending Different people From their group From their board To go and examine And try to crush Jesus' ministry So last week we saw the Pharisees This week we're going to look at The Sadducees Okay Okay I'm not going to sing the They're So Sadducee song if there's any apple in here. <laughs> um, now, it's important before we go too far into the text, and, and, and this may seem like a lot of nuts and bolts and things, but it's important that we actually spend some time and we look at the Sadducees because... Um, The reality about the Sadducees is we don't hear a lot about them in the scriptures. We hear a lot about the Pharisees. We hear a lot about the scribes, about the Herodians. um, But what we don't hear a lot about is specifically the Sadducees. In fact, this is the only recorded account of them actually coming into contact, encounter with Jesus. So it's important that we sort of give them a profile. We get to know them a little bit, um, interview them a little bit, figure out who they are, what they're about. Um, And as we do that, I think a lot of things are going to make sense. The first thing about the Sadducees that we have to understand is that we can't clump them in with the other guys. That's what I used to do. i just clump them in with the Pharisees, all those religious guys, they're all the same, whatever. We can't really do that. Because they're not. They're very specific and they're very singular. Clumping them in together would be sort of like saying, Oh, Mormons and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and and Protestant Christians and Eastern Orthodox Catholics. They're really all the same, which a lot of people do that, right? They they would just classify them all as Christian. But we know that there's worlds of difference between them. There's worlds of difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Theologically, philosophically, uh, they're completely different in so many ways. The thing they have in common is they both want Jesus out of the picture, okay? Along with the Heronians. They both want Jesus gone and out of the picture. Now, the best way to explain, I think, the Sadducees is to sort of contrast them with the Pharisees, to look at the different beliefs, as we're probably more familiar, if we've been in church, if we've studied our Bibles, we're probably a little more familiar with the Pharisees. Now, there's three primary differences, if you are taking notes. The first difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that the Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty, while the Sadducees affirmed human free will. Now, what that means in English is essentially that the the, the Sadducees they believed that God wasn't in control of their life they were in control of their life. They were the ones that were actually responsible for the outcome of their life. They were the ones that were responsible for uh, where they ended up in their life, uh, the things that were happening in their life, whereas the Pharisees, they were more, it's all God, it's God's sovereignty, everything that happens is from the Lord and by the Lord. Does that make sense? So there's a difference there. Um, the second difference is that the Sadducees didn't believe in anything supernatural. Okay, they were what they would consider themselves to be the strict realists, they're the ones that say, hey, if I don't see it physically, if I don't see it in the scriptures literally, then I don't believe in it. The Pharisees were sort of the opposite side of that coin where they were like taking things way out of context and writing uh, volume after volume of law based on one sentence or two sentences of Torah. They would take literally something like Sabbath and instead of just taking the Sabbath for what it was, something created for man, they would they would write The mission. They would write the 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 law about things, for instance, like that. If you tied a string to your house, you could travel as far as you wanted on this on this on on the the Sabbath because you're still technically at home. This is what the Pharisees would do. So the Sadducees are like these strict real. They're like these strict uh, literalists. They don't want anything other than just what they see. The Pharisees are sort of this other extreme. Um, And the thirdly, and most importantly to our story, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Okay, they did not believe in the resurrection. This is important. Now, actually, this is interesting too. The Sadducees were not the majority on this on this doctrine on this on this idea. The majority of Israel believed in a resurrection. The Pharisees, the scribes, the the majority believed that there was a life after death, that there was somewhere that we went when we died. The Sadducees were almost a minority in this belief. They didn't believe there was a resurrection. They believed that this is it. After we die, our bodies go on the ground. We cease to exist. Okay. People think that nowadays. It's nothing new. So there's actually some pretty big disagreements there between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, this is kind of interesting. How do the Sadducees not believe in a resurrection? How do they not believe? Because keep in mind, these guys are biblical scholars. These aren't just secularists. These aren't just guys that want nothing to do with the Bible. These are actually biblical scholars who have studied and most likely memorized the Torah. Now, how is it that they missed the resurrection? Are they dumb? I mean, did they just skip over it? Well, this was interesting for me to learn, actually. The Torah, okay, if you guys are familiar with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy I said Deuteronomy and Dumbers. That's awesome. Um, (laughs) Okay, I'm not going to go any further with that. Um, The the Torah itself actually doesn't literally talk about a resurrection. Did you guys know that? Um, Those first five books of the Bible, there isn't an actual sentence or verse that actually says that there's an afterlife. That was really interesting to find out. So the Pharisees and and, and even the church today, we believe in uh, the prophets and the Psalms. Uh, We believe in Ezekiel, where it talks about the dry bones, which is obviously an illustration of resurrection, that God would raise these dry bones, right? And Israel, most of Israel recognized that as well. But the Sadducees said, hey, we hold just literally to the Torah, and therefore we don't hold that there is any resurrection or life after death. And this would be an equivalent to some of the people that would look at the Bible and say, Well, I don't exactly see the word Trinity, or I don't see it spelled out that there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, three in one. So therefore, there is no Trinity. Have you heard people say that before? Um, Even though the Trinity is obviously there, and it is obviously proclaimed throughout the Scriptures and seen throughout the Scriptures, they would say, because I don't see it spelled out literally, I don't believe in it. Or people that would say maybe even rapture, right? Uh, We don't see that specific word rapture, so therefore we don't believe in one. Even though that's just a helpful word for us to understand that we're going to be taken up uh, to heaven, So that's kind of the equivalent of that. These Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the supernatural. Now, what is the result? What is the outcome of a theology like that? What's the outcome of a theology like the Sadducees? A few things. First of all, it would be extreme arrogance, right? Because if you think that God isn't sovereign, firstly, over your life, if you think that you are responsible for every good thing that you've ever done, then that's gonna to lead to simple arrogance. That's not gonna give any glory to God. That's not gonna humble you. I mean, we as Christians, we understand everything that we do is from above, every good and perfect gift. We don't deserve glory or, 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 or applause for anything because it's all God. The, the, the Sadducees didn't believe that. They believed that they deserved the glory for that, that they were in control of their own lives. So arrogance would be huge. They're self-made men, right? And as a result of that, it would also mean that they were living for now. They're living for everything that's around them at the time. They have no eternal focus. They have, I mean, think about this. What would your life look like if you didn't think there was heaven? And a lot of people don't, right? If you didn't think there was heaven, you would probably live your life in a way where I have to, to, to soak every bit of joy and happiness out of this world right now because if this is as good as it gets... <laughs> it better get better than the way it is right now so I'm gonna go drink, I mean whatever you know, we would, our, our philosophy, our, the way we live our lives would completely change if there was no afterlife and so too with the Sadducees they don't believe there's an afterlife so for them it wasn't so much uh, you know, going and committing sin for them it was more Well, we better be as powerful and as affluent and as strong as we possibly can be in this world because if this is it then we better rock it while we're here You know what I mean? We better do all that we can do. Now, because of that, the Sadducees were literally the top of the food chain religiously. They were the ones, guys, literally running the temple. They were the ones that were upset when Jesus flipped over the tables because that was their money coming in. These guys were like top dog businessmen. They were on Shark Tank. You know what I mean? And not the ones, they were the ones in the armchairs on Shark Tank. You ever watch that movie, that show? Um, they're, They're literally the ones that are the highest religious status. And the reason being that If it's all about this world, then we better make it as good as we can possibly be in this world, right? Guys, if it's all about this world, I'm really bumped. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's some good, you know, God's grace is evident in so many areas of our life, but this world is just not, it's not it. I mean, it hurts, and there's pain and struggles, and it's tiring, and most of us here tonight, even though we have smiles on our faces, are anxious about something, we're stressed about something, uh, there's something going on in our life that is hard and hurtful, (laughs) I'm so glad I'm not a Sadducee. I really am. There's hope. There's eternity. Now we need to be aware of something here, and I'm going to borrow a phrase from actually from John Mark Comer up in Portland. He, he 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 has a good phrase for this. It's called Sadduceeism. <laughs> the the reality of what's going on here is a Sadduceism. This is this is the thinking that hey. I'm not worried about forever, I'm not worried about eternity, I'm worried about the here and now, so therefore I'm going to enjoy the here and now. Therefore I'm going to enjoy culture, I'm going to enjoy life, I'm going to enjoy everything that is around me to make me as happy as I possibly can. Does this sound familiar at all? I mean, this is the epitome of our culture. Now, now, I'm not even just talking about hardline atheists that say, no, there's no heaven. I'm talking about even just people within the church, that even though they would say on paper, yes, I believe in heaven, are they living like that? Or are they living like, hey man, i got to make myself as happy as I possibly can on this world because this is all that I have. This is the way that most of us in America, Christian, non-Christian, religious, non-religious, this is the way that most of us live. We hear a lot of talk in the pulpit about Pharisees and Phariseeism, which is relevant and important, but also Sadduceeism is important too. Because there's a lot of us doing it. Living like there's no eternity. Living like this is it right now, so I'm gonna go eat that burger and I'm gonna do everything that I want right now. I'm gonna save my money, spend my money. I'm gonna live how I wanna live because this is it. This is how we act. This is how we live so many times. We need to watch for this. I was gonna pick, i pick on Bend. When I worked at a church in Bend, and this doesn't let you guys off the hook because we're all, we're all bad, but in Bend, I worked at a church there and it was so funny because you know there'd be people on Sunday And then the next week, it was fresh powder on Bachelor, and everybody's gone. (laughs) Everybody's skiing, you know, everybody's snowboarding, and it's just like, wait a minute, Um, where's our priority here? I mean, is is it in the, the kingdom? Is it in the body of Christ? Is it in eternal things, or is it like, it's Sadduceeism in a sense. It's saying, I want what I want right now, and it's more important than what's in the future. It's more important than what's in heaven. Having said all that, let's look at the text. I know that was really long and laborious. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 18. We're just gonna take this verse by verse. And I believe what God would have for us in this is gonna unfold itself as we simply look at the text. So, verse 18. The Sadducees came to him. And we know who those guys are, right? We gotta feel for them. Uh, they came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, this is the question, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, now remember firstly, before we get into this question, remember that, remember who's asking this question. These guys are biblically literate, okay, they're scripturally accurate, they understand the scriptures, they probably have memorize literally the Torah so they're pulling this what would seem to us like almost a, like a, like an obscure and random law out of Deuteronomy chapter 25 but to them it's something that they would be familiar with uh, it's something that, that to them wasn't obscure in any way so they pull Jesus' attention his focus to this specific law and the law is that of what's called the Leverite Marriage Law Okay? Some of you may not be familiar with this, unless you read Deuteronomy before you go to bed. Um, you probably aren't. Uh, it helps sometimes go to sleep for sure. Um, so the Leverite marriage law basically was this. I'm not going to go back and read it all. But what it basically was is it said that if a man, I'm sorry, if a woman's husband dies, and she is without son. Okay, Now remember, in that day, if you didn't have kids, you didn't have anything. You didn't have social security, you didn't have your 401k, you didn't have any of that future retirement, you didn't have someone to take care of you, someone to work your fields, to carry on your job, your name, your profession. Kids were everything. If you didn't have kids, you didn't have anything, especially as a woman in those days, right? So this law is basically saying if, if you are married, as, as a Jewish woman, if you're married and your husband dies, then it's the right, I'm sorry, it's the, the role, the responsibility of the closest brother of kin, the closest of kin, specifically the brother, to come and actually marry that woman. Now this isn't polygamy. We're not talking about a married man. We're talking about the closest single brother coming in and marrying the woman. Okay, uh, This is the law. This is the rule. Now the reason Jesus, I'm sorry, the reason that this law is there, it's to protect Israel. It's to, to, to keep them from having to go outside of themselves, to go and marry. It's to, to, to protect the woman whose husband dies, to make sure that she has a legacy, to make sure that she has someone to take care of her. So this is the law that they're drawing attention to. Uh, then after that, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, After they draw Jesus' attention to this, they begin to give this theoretical, uh, kind of absurd and ridiculous illustration about this law. Okay, this isn't a real thing. This didn't actually happen. The Sadducees are like, okay, so what if this happened? Okay, and here's what they say. They say, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Okay, so basically, hey, there's, there's a woman, uh, she, her husband dies, so she marries the next brother. Well, then he dies, and then she marries the next brother. Well, then he dies, and she marries the next brother. I mean, it's absurd. And then he dies, and finally, after seven brothers, she dies. What is wrong with this woman, right? I mean, there's something wrong when she keeps killing all of her husbands. Um, I'm just, it seems obvious. Anyways, so after she kills all her husbands, after her husbands die, um, they say, and then she dies. So who's going to be married to her in the afterlife? Whose husband is she going to be? Now, what they're basically doing here, and, and I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this kind of argument, this kind of uh, thought before. When you when you when you ask somebody a question, sometimes uh, they try to counter it, or they try to they try to attack your thought by coming up with some absurd, crazy, random. Uh, like, what if this happened though? I think of abortion right away. Right? Uh, whenever I talk to someone about abortion, and how and I've gotten in arguments and in and. In, 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 Conversations with people about abortion before, um, they always go to this extreme thing. Well, what if a woman was raped and then she has a kid? Okay, so that's maybe like 0.5% of abortions. So what about the other 99.5% of murders that are taking place? Are we okay with that because of the 0.5? And even with the 0.5, who are you to say that that child still doesn't deserve to live? because some guy committed a crime, right? So you take this outrageous example and try to justify your points by this outrageous example. That's what they're doing. They're saying, what if seven guys married the same gal according to the law, and then they all died, and then she dies? Whose husband is she, or whose wife is she gonna be? It's kind of absurd. Now, firstly, we gotta ask, too, why are they questioning Jesus about the resurrection? There's a specific reason why they're actually asking Jesus about the resurrection, other than the obvious fact that they don't believe in it. I mean, obviously, they want to attack something that they don't think is real. But the reason primarily that they're asking Jesus about the resurrection is because the resurrection itself was almost sort of the social motor by which was driving or pushing Jesus' ministry. When Jesus raised Lazarus, it blew people's minds. I mean, it was spread, the news was spread, people were coming from all around. We wanna see the rabbi, we wanna see the Jew that has raised a man from the dead. How is this possible? How how did he do that? And then even furthermore, Jesus has been talking about his own resurrection, destroy this temple, and three days I will build it again, right? He's talking about him raising from the dead. It's almost sort of, like I said, it's the motor that's pushing Jesus' ministry. And the Sadducees know this. So not only do they think resurrection is stupid and absurd, they think, hey, if we can pull that idea out of Jesus' ministry, it's going to come crumbling down. If we can take away the reality of Jesus' power of resurrection and ultimately God's power of resurrection, then Jesus' ministry will ultimately collapse. Now this sounds extremely familiar to me, doesn't it? The arrogance sort of of their thinking I think, of, I think about guys that, can, that say, you know what, Christianity is just absurd. It's not academically thought through. There's holes in the religion. And guys like Richard Dawkins would come in, intelligent as they are, and say, I'm going to jab at and try to pull out the foot of having a God in general, a Christianity. Is it working? No. Are the Sadducees going to prevail here with their intelligent thinking with their absurd idea of of trying to disprove the power of God? No, because guess what? 2,000 years plus later, the church is still here. Okay, No, no intellectual has been able to come against the church yet and come up with an argument against the power of God that has been strong enough to pull out the leg underneath the table. It just has not happened. The Sadducees were brilliant. They were not brilliant enough for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is truth. He is the truth. So let's look at Jesus' response to this outrageous hypothetical that they give in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? I love this about Jesus, okay? He, he doesn't go like this. <laughs> he doesn't go, oh, let me shift the focus. Let me change the subject. Let me, let me try to get defensive here and, and think about an apologetics class. He doesn't do that. Jesus goes straight to the heart of the issue. He cuts straight through. Before he even gets into reasoning with them, which he will, before he even gets into critically disassembling their argument, he goes straight to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is two things. Firstly, he says they're scripturally ignorant. Now, help me out here. Are these guys scripturally ignorant? No, they're not. They've studied the Torah more than you and I have ever studied the Bible. How is Jesus saying that they're scripturally ignorant? This would be like literally going up to a brain surgeon and saying, you know what, man? I just really don't think you know anything about brains. I think you're ignorant. <laughs> and he would look at me like you're an idiot. Um, what if I went up to a rocket scientist and I said, hey, man, I, I really don't think you know anything about science. Um, it would be ridiculous. So, so it's kind of interesting that Jesus is doing that. But let's think about who Jesus is really quick. Jesus is the word, right? Jesus is the scriptures, Jesus is the truth. All wisdom, all knowledge, all power of God is personified in Jesus Christ. The word itself is synonymous with Jesus Christ. So is anyone else qualified to do this? No, Jesus is perfectly qualified to call out the ignorance of these men about the scriptures because he is the scriptures themselves. The second thing he does is he says that they're ignorant of the power of God. God. He says you're ignorant of the scriptures and you're ignorant of the power of God. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But realize if they don't believe that God can raise the dead, then they've completely missed the power of God, right? If God's not capable or able of raising someone, he's not powerful. So Jesus continues his answer, okay? He says this in verse 25. For when they raise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. This is kind of an interesting verse. Um, First of all, his response is cutting against the grain of the culture. It's cutting against the grain of the culture because Jews as a whole, the majority actually would have believed that marriage carried on into heaven. Did you know that? They actually believed that when you were married to a spouse, you would be married to that spouse in heaven. Now, Jesus is kind of coming across with something a little different. He's not going with the flow here. He's coming in with a different thinking. He raises the bar as far as the thinking here. He says, um, literally, I can't even use a physical example to explain what heaven's like in marriage because it's so different. It's such a different playing field. I need to reach further for an example. This is like trying to explain a, a, a butterfly if you've never seen one by simply looking at a caterpillar. Can you you think of trying to explain that to someone? Like, hey man, see this little green worm, this little fuzzy guy that's kind of crawling around? Yeah, he's going to become this crazy, like, beautiful thing with wings and it's going to fly around. He'd be like, what are you talking about? This guy had never seen a butterfly, but you would think you were crazy. But this is the reality of trying to explain the supernatural, the eternal realm of God with the physical things. So Jesus has to reach a little further than that. He has to raise the bar a little bit. And that's what he does when he says that they are like angels in heaven. Now... He's not saying that we will be angels in heaven, right? I think they got this wrong back in the day. That's why we see movies from the 40s where when we die, all of a sudden we have a halo and we're an angel. Um, It's not what it's saying here. It's not saying that we become angels. It's saying that we become like angels. What that means to become like angels isn't necessarily that... what he's saying is that we become a heavenly being, that we don't look at things or live in the same way that we lived before. Now, really quick, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but in regards, if you guys are wondering, in regards to the question of will I be with my spouse after, after death? And that question came up a few weeks ago, or a few months ago in the Q&A time. Um, it seems to me, and I'm not gonna press this, but it seems to me like the question isn't necessarily yes or no, but it's a yes and. Does that make sense? It's not, it's not that either you will or you won't be with your spouse in heaven. I think it's more that um, you will be with your spouse in heaven, but it's not gonna be just your spouse. It's gonna be that everyone in the church, everyone that is of God, everyone that's a Christian, including Christ himself, will be fully in fellowship in a way that we can't even explain, we can't even understand. And we're gonna be intimately connected with everyone in a way that we, we just don't even grasp. Um, I have a helpful quote that I'm going to read and then we're going to move on. It's from the New American Standard Commentary. It says about this, this is probably the best understanding of this text, is that no Christian will be deprived of any meaningful relationship with believing family, members and friends. Not the grief of loss, but the surpassing joy of new and equally meaningful relationships mark life in God's family, whether now in the church or in the future. So you can't think of this as, man, if it's going to be a bummer if I'm not married to my spouse. You're still going to have that connection and fellowship. I don't know, but you guys, the deepest fellowship I have with my wife is our connection with the Lord, (laughs) Our connection when we have fellowship based and centered around Jesus Christ. That's when I feel the closest to her. And heaven is going to be that plus with all of God's people, and even more importantly, with God Himself. A vulnerable and open and complete connectivity with God the Father in heaven, along with his church. So we're thinking about marriage in the regards of that it would be a bummer if I wasn't exclusively um, close to my wife. But well, you will be close to your wife, along with all of God's church. That might sound weird, but I think it's pretty exciting. It's pretty cool. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. Does that make sense? Verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? So what we have here in verse 26 is Jesus' is reasoning with them. He's 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 cut right to the heart of the issue like a doctor, like a loving doctor cutting in with, with the cancer for cancer with a knife. He's looking for that by saying, You guys are ignorant, you don't understand the scriptures, you don't understand the power of God. And now that he's done that, he's going to reason with them from the scriptures. And he does that by reaching back to a story you guys might be familiar with in the Old Testament, when Moses, in the book of Exodus, came up to the burning bush, and God chose to speak to Moses through the burning bush. And when God did that, he spoke about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They would have been before Moses, hundreds of years prior to Moses. And when God is speaking about the patriarchs, he uses very specific tense. He doesn't say, now listen, he doesn't say that I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does he say? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Jesus' reason here. He's not saying, Look, guys, I used to be the God of these men, and now they've passed on. They've gone to the ground, as the Sadducees would say, they're no more. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, I still am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's actually a brilliant reasoning. It's a brilliant argument, and I guarantee it would have been an argument the Pharisees would not have thought to throw at the Sadducees before. And then, lastly, in verse 27. He continues and says, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And then he again says, you're quite wrong. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Who is the God of the Sadducees? The God of the Sadducees is a powerless God. He's a limited God who does not care for them. He's not not interacting in their life. He's not involved in their life. The God of the Pharisees honestly reminds me of an abusive father who got a woman pregnant and left and just didn't, did, wasn't involved in the picture, wasn't there to raise his kid. That's the God of the Pharisees. He's not involved. He's not powerful. He doesn't care. That's the God of the... Now, who's the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is complete opposite of the abusive father. He's the perfect father, Right? He's the perfect father. He suffers for us. He came into this world to pay for our sins, sins that he didn't even acquire, sins that he didn't even deserve. He's a God that's loving. Every breath going in and out of your lungs right now is God's grace. It's his hand, it's his breath going into you, allowing you to breathe. It's God's grace. He is Infinitely involved in every point, every aspect, every thought of your life. It's all grace. This is the father that we have. Not the father of the Sadducees. A cold father that wants nothing to do with his people. We have a warm father that has everything to do with us. That has given us eternal hope. That is building a kingdom forever for us to be a part of. This is the father that we have. Not the father of the Sadducees. The second thing that he says here. He says that you are. He's, it's implicit. It's implicit. But he says that he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. I think what he's saying there is that the biggest issue with the Sadducees is that they're dead. God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And the Pharisees, they're not physically dead. They are now. But they were spiritually dead, right? They were spiritually dead. Okay, would you guys agree that we don't want to be the Sadducees? Give me a nod. Okay. If we can agree on that, In closing, I just have three points about how we can avoid being like the Sadducees. I don't know about you guys, I want to be as far as I can from the thinking, from the theology, from the ideals that these men have. So three things. Number one, to avoid being like the Sadducees, number one, we need to behold the kingdom. Let me unpack that. When our eyes are constantly fixed on here, when our eyes are constantly fixed on now, we completely lose perspective of things. I mean, this is a simple analogy, but if you guys have ever been in the redwoods before, it's really dense in there. It's hard to know where you are, or what direction. I feel like you get so easily turned around in there because you lose perspective. Because all you see is around you. I can only see maybe a 50 feet, 100 feet, and then there's trees and bushes. A completely lost perspective. The Sadducees had no perspective. They had no eternal perspective because they denied the fact that there was an afterlife. If there is no afterlife, you have zero perspective. If there's no afterlife, all you are basing everything that you do on is what you see. Now, we as Christians, this is not how we live. (laughs) We live looking as far ahead as we possibly can at heaven, at the future hope that God has made for us, right? Terry Parton, my good friend, um, he's sleeping. Uh, Terry Parton uh, gave me a beautiful illustration this the other day. He said when he was a driving instructor, I caught you. When he was a driving instructor, he we used to tell his 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 instructees or whatever that when you're driving you need to look as far as you possibly can right i'm uh, quoting you right uh, look as far as you possibly can on the road and when if that's where you're looking then your body is naturally going to take the curves it's going to dodge the cars it's going to go and take you where you need to be and this is beautiful this is the way that we are to live our eyes our focus is on heaven it's on heaven and when our eyes and our focus is on heaven, all of this stuff makes sense. And can I just say, this stuff is a bummer. When, when heaven is the point, when heaven is where we're going, when everything we do in life is for heaven, it gives value and worth to what we do here. Otherwise, everything that we do here, all the pain, all the suffering, all the emotional strain that we go through, all the stress, all the times we hurt other people, or on the other side of it, all the good things that we've done, all of the, the times we've helped people, all the times we've loved our spouses or loved our kids, that's all for nothing, right? If there's no heaven, that's for nothing. It's a waste of life. If there's heaven, those are not meaningless, temporary things. Those are eternal investments and a future hope. Every time you love your wife, every time you love your husband, every time you kiss your kids, every time you say the name of Jesus to someone, encourage them, edify them, that's an investment in the kingdom that will carry on for eternity, and it's not for nothing. Every time you suffer, every time you deal with pain, every time someone hurts you, lies to you, steals from you, that's not for anything, because God will eternally deal with that, and God will restore eternally for that. If you have your focus on heaven, it all makes sense. It's it's not for nothing. Number two, in order to not be a Sadducee, we need to behold him as he is. We need to behold him as he is. What that basically means is we need to let God define himself. We need to let God define himself. One of the oldest and most common mistakes that we've made in Christianity is that we've constantly said, no, this is who God is. And who we end up making God is not who he originally was. That we don't behold him as he is. We don't discover him as he is. We look to make him as we want him to be. Now listen to this. You might even write this down. God is a reality, not a philosophy, And what is a philosophy? A philosophy is a thinking about from life experiences. It's a theoretical thinking that you put together based off of life and what we can see. That's a philosophical thought. Jesus, God the Father, is not a philosophy. He's not. He's a reality, okay? He's not a philosophy. He is a reality, and therefore we are explorers of God, not authors of God, right? We don't decide who God is, We we discover who God is. We explore who God is. We want to find out who he is, not make him who we want him to be. Our theology should be the means by which to worship God. You guys know the word theology? You know what that means? It's theology. Theo meaning God, ology meaning the study of that we're looking to discover who he is. People think of theology as something that separates Christians. It's not. It's something that, that should be Literally, like science, looking into nature to see what nature is. Theology is looking at God to see who God is. Through his word, we need to let the Bible discern who God is. The Sadducees did not do this. They decided for themselves, based off of their own conservative thinking, that God had no power, that there was no resurrection. May we not make that same mistake. And thirdly, and most importantly, we need to behold him in awe and wonder. We need to behold him in awe and wonder. When Jesus stuck them in the heart and said the two things that are wrong is that firstly you're ignorant, but secondly, and I think even more importantly, you're ignorant because you have not beheld the power of God. You have not been in awe of God. The issue is not that they didn't read the scriptures. The issue is that they did not read the scriptures through the lens of awe and glory of who God is. That was the issue, Jesse. Can you put that slide up really quick? And hopefully, you guys can see this. So we went to the beach. Uh, we went to the beach this weekend. I don't know if you guys can tell it, it's me and my daughter um, on the beach, and uh, she's almost eleven months. She's the cutest thing in the world. Um, she's never been to the ocean before. Okay, she, everything is new to her. She doesn't know about anything, man. <laughs> she's like, she. I mean, she's still figuring out what a banana is. It's great, you know. Um, But she's just, everything's new to her and everything's exciting to her and every day she learns a new thing. She's clapping now and she's doing, everything's new and it's exciting and and she's just figuring it out. And so I take this little girl and the first time I take her to the ocean and I I just kind of set her in the sand and I'm holding her. And I don't know if you can tell, but she's just completely mesmerized by the ocean. Have you guys ever felt that feeling when you stand on the beach and you look at the ocean and you're just like, this thing is huge. And this shrinking feeling comes over you and you go, Man, God, you're so big, and you're so much more than I know. I mean, this is just something small in comparison. God has breathed stars and galaxies, right? And just like my daughter would sit here and stare at the ocean, you should have seen her face. She was just like, she'd never seen anything that big. I mean, the the the, the horizon—you can't even see the end of the ocean. It just turns to sky. It was, it was the most beautiful thing. And I was thinking about this. This is the state that God wants us to be in, in awe of him. In awe of him. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What the apostle is saying here is he's saying that in order to become like God, we need to behold God. That as we behold him, we become like him. As we spend time with him, that we begin to look like him. Guys, if we do not allow ourselves to behold him in awe, to behold his power, his glory, his grace, then we can never hope to become like him. It wasn't enough for the Sadducees to know the scriptures. They had no eye of the power of God. They, had, they were not taken, they were not that swept away by the majesty and the glory of God. And therefore, they were mistaken. They were ignorant because they didn't see it. May we never be ignorant in that way. May we never lose the wonder of God and his majesty and his power. May we never stop looking like that little girl at God. May our theology be literally logs in the fire of our passion to worship God because he is worth worshiping, because he is infinitely greater than anything. It's not enough to simply know of God. We need to behold him to become like him. Amen? Can I say one more thing? This is the greatest adventure you'll ever be on. Beholding God is the greatest adventure you will ever, ever, ever embark on. Jesus said that in John 17, three, didn't he? He said, this is eternal life, that they might know him, that they might know the true God, that we might, you could say, behold the true God, that we might see and be in awe of God. For all of heaven, this is what we're gonna do, is behold him in awe, in splendor. That's eternal life. It's the greatest adventure you will ever embark on. And lastly, you guys, I mean, this may be begging the question, well, how do we do that? How do we behold him in awe? It's really simple. Hebrews 1 3 says this He, Jesus, okay, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Did you catch that? How do we behold the glory of God? How do we behold in awe the grace of God, the power of God, by looking at his son, Jesus Christ, because all of God's glory, all of God's love is contained in Jesus. He is the radiance of the Father. When we look at him, we see God the Father in full splendor. So we just look at Jesus. What did we do tonight? We looked at Jesus. (laughs) And hopefully you guys feel what I feel, and that's a restoration a restoration coming over you as you realize that God is bigger than your problems he you came in here with, <laughs> that you realize that God is stronger than your weakness, When you realize that he has overcome forever for you and he's building a home for you forever, that he loves you forever that will not change. We are to behold him every day through the face of Jesus Christ, amen? Would you guys stand and let's pray. Father, I just want to know you more. God, I want to experience a greater degree of your power. Lord, I want my mind to be filled with, uh, with, with good and, and solid uh, understanding and theology of who you are. That I might worship you better. God, I want to be like my daughter, just beholding you day after day. Lord, that things would pass by me that would normally shake me, that would normally mess me up, but because my eyes are on you, because my eyes are on heaven, it does not matter. I pray that over all these tonight, God, all of your sheep tonight, all of these people from Heritage, Lord, this family, I pray that, Lord, we would all never lose our wonder of you, God. Lord, that our eyes would be fixed on you, God, forever, and that everything else would fade away. Lord, as we deal with realities and and pain and sin and hurts, Lord, that we would deal with it, but that we would just know it's temporary. God, we look forward to the adventure continuing in heaven as we behold continually your glory, Jesus, forever. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for saving us, Lord. And thank you for sharing yourself with us forever and we pray these things and thank you for these things in Jesus mighty name amen thank you guys for coming and we'll see you on Sunday God bless